and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write his dissertation, get a job, survive the coronavirus, teach a class, and raise a human being. Um, so a lot's happened, and I have not posted a podcast for a really long time, for about a month. Um, this series is meant to follow a class that I've been teaching at UC Berkeley about uh, uh, work and play in the Industrial Revolution. I'm teaching that class as a way of like teaching college writing, but this podcast was meant to be a way that I could practice the content for students. And I did it. I did it for about four weeks. For a whole month, I recorded a podcast every week about the content of the course. And then somewhere around week five, I uh, just, I got too tired. I got too busy. There was too much life around me, um, which is a good time to introduce my new co-host. Making of a story has been uh, really a one-person affair for a, a quite some time. Um, we've had plenty of people on to interview, but I would like to introduce my new co-host. It is my daughter, Bina, um, who is cooing at you right now, and I'm looking after her, and she's in my arms, and I'm holding her as I'm recording this because it, we can't, we don't have any childcare, and mom needs to take a nap. Um, so that brings us to the second big event. The first big event, I guess, is that I was completely unable to record a podcast for four weeks. The second big event is that uh, in uh, the past four weeks, uh, some major history has happened. Um, we are now, right now, it is uh, about the 23rd of March is when I'm recording this, uh, 2020. And that in the history books you will see is during probably what would be the first COVID-19 pandemic. Um, the streets of uh, the Bay Area are almost completely empty. Uh, we're under a shelter-in-place ruling right now, which means that uh, we're not meant to go outside except for essential activities, which means like going shopping or going uh, to a doctor's appointment or because it's the Bay Area, playing Frisbee by the lake. Um no, you know, the death toll is, 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 is racking up steadily, um, and there's just a ton of uncertainty. The big thing for this class is that uh, UC Berkeley, where I teach, has suspended all in-person instruction. So what was a very active and convivial class with a bunch of students is now something that I have to do over Zoom. And it's spring break right now, so all of my students have departed Berkeley, most of them departed Berkeley, and they're all at home uh, thinking about their papers. Anyway, I'm at home too without the regularity of having to teach, and I thought this would be a good chance for me to catch up on the podcast that I missed, do a podcast a day, which is what I used to do. Uh, and just run you through really quickly what the content of the course has been so far so that maybe we can get back on track and, and finish out this podcast so I don't have a series that's half finished on my roster. So what are we going to be talking about today? Um, today in the course, we're going to be talking about a, a kind of a, 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 the second half 
of the story of work in the Industrial Revolution. The first half of the story of work was, of course, that people in the working classes ended up working a lot more. Um, people worked uh, still really long hours, but they tended to work more days per uh, uh, year. Uh, they had fewer holidays, they had a lot less time off, they had uh, less time off during the week, fewer St. Mondays, uh, uh, breaks only for, for, for Sunday uh, uh, church services. Um, so you can think of the Industrial Revolution as people worked harder and longer. But what's weird in the second half of the 19th century and then in the 20th century is that generally uh, we have a story where people came to work a lot less. Um, the ideal that we all grow up with is that we work for eight hours a day, five days a week. And you can tell that this is something that itself has a history, because even though perhaps our parents, my generation's parents, were able to have this ideal of a 40-hour work week, my generation, millennials, probably work close to 50, 60, 70 hours on average. I'm not sure what the actual uh, length of time is, but especially professionals, we're, we're, there's no, you know, I work on a Saturday, I work on a Sunday. We do not have that. But we're going to talk a little bit about how that came to be. But part of the problem of that as a story that you might tell to some undergrads or you might tell in a podcast is that the story is really different for each individual industry that you look at. There's no real clear narrative, uh, except for the fact that over a really long period of time, work tended to go down after, let's say, 1850. But even this is not really a full uh, portrayal of what happened, because even even then, um, huge swaths of, 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 of the labor market worked more. Um, women didn't work less from 1850, they probably worked more because they had more stuff to do at home. They, uh, as women entered the workforce in the 20th century, women had to start doing double duty, doing both domestic labor and doing labor uh, uh, in the private sector. And farming is still had really long hours uh, uh, as well, an entire sector of the economy that, 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 that didn't have this diminution in working hours. So while this, 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 this decline in work time is true in a general sense, it's really hard to make a kind of understandable story about it. So in class, what I did was I used this opportunity to, to show how this phenomenon of declining work time can help us understand something about what historians do. And that is that historians make narratives about change by consciously thinking about what we think drives history. Now, often when you're talking about historians and we're talking about different kinds of work, you'll hear us talk about this implicitly. Unless you're a historian, you might not exactly get what we are talking about. If you're talking about historians, they might ask each other, what kind of historian are you? Are you a political historian, a social historian, a cultural historian, an economic historian, an environmental historian, an energy historian? All of these kinds of historians they, they, what defines their work is different besides using different sources and having different, you know, areas of interest are is kind of a philosophical argument about what they think is important to highlight what moves history, not necessarily what causes big social events to happen, but what moves the stories that we want 
to tell. And I think that this story of work time in decline is an interesting uh, uh, vehicle for us to explore what historians, uh, uh, how historians frame narratives, uh, because there's a bunch of different ways that we can tell the story. I'm going to tell um, uh, four or five different stories um, about how we can frame this, that each have kind of different um main actors, they have different beginnings and endings, they have different morals, and they have a different sense of what moves history. The first is is going to be political. It's going to be the, the sort of story that you might have heard in the classroom 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, where the main movers are politicians and the main actions are pieces of legislation. Then I'm going to talk about another old, you know, uh, a, a you know, usual suspect kind of, 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 of mover of history, and that is class struggle. This is a, you know, you can relate this to the political story, but it's a particularly Marxian uh, a view of history that sees this particular thing changing because of a, 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 a battle between the classes. Then I'm going to talk a little bit more about the, the fuzzy, happy-go-lucky, well, every, you know, the cultural historian standpoint, where, where what changes is due not to uh, 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 class struggle, but, but rather to systems of s symbols and, and rituals. Um, then I'm going to be talking a little bit about how we can frame this work time in decline economically. This is not at all an exhaustive list of the ways that we can understand uh, this phenomenon of work time decline. I think that's the interesting thing about history as a discipline. We can think in a bunch of different ways about the same sets of events or the same general phenomenon. Yeah, Bina is really interested in that as well, isn't she? She thinks that that's also a very uh, useful thing. Um, okay, so let's talk about politics. How do we frame um, the political in this? So the political story is that we can see the slow reduction in work hours as the result of a series of legislative acts that we can understand as 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 the actions of a bunch of politicians and a bunch of people in political movements who are trying to influence politicians so we hear a lot about parties and a lot about you know particular politicians um so the setting of this is that there were a bunch of debates um, in the late 18th and early 19th centuries about how people should work, particularly a certain kind of person. People were considered like, you know, in need of protection, women and people like Bina, children. How desirable was it to have children work in these new things called the factories? And this led a number of social reformers, particularly religious social reformers, to, to get worried about children in factories, produce uh, documents about how bad it was for children to work in factories, for newspaper people to write stories about it, for there to be a social movement to try to reform factory legislation. This led to a series of political acts that were passed in the 19th century um, that are called the Factory Acts. You can look these up in Wikipedia. Uh, these fiddled with how much people worked um, in various different ways. And, and again, the old story, we, we, we would have spent an entire podcast on this uh, you know, 20 years ago, if there were still podcasts, we would tell the story of all the different Factory Acts 
Um, <laughs> Dina thinks it's boring as well, don't you? You think it's not a very interesting thing to do to talk about the factory acts. Neither does your dad. Um, but now it's just kind of fallen out of fashion. The big things to look out for is the Factory Act of 1833. This reduced children and only children to working eight hours a day, uh, barred factory work to, to people under nine and, and limited to eight hours to people under 13. Um, but this was very quickly circumvented. This was very quickly circumvented and, 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 and uh, it required a, a bunch of other acts and only applied to children. And I think only in certain ways. Anyway, Bean obviously does not like the uh, political story. This the story of all these different factory acts and of who is involved and what politicians did it and blah, blah, blah. It, 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 it's huge. Uh, but go to Wikipedia for it because I don't know it. But that is the political side of the story. Again, I want to just point out the main actors here are politicians who I'm too lazy to remember their names um, and also uh, particular kinds of social movements that influence those politicians and, of course, political parties and political ideologies. Another thing that moves history is class struggle. This is how history moves for Marx. Those politicians, they might be advocating for particular parties. Those social movements, they might be advocating for, 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 for particular interests. But all of that for the Marxist is just noise. What really matters is understanding the working class and the bourgeois and the aristocrats. They are all in conflict about basic irreducible material problems. And that conflict, the conflict between these different classes, defined by the relationships with how you make things, defined by the relationships to particular kinds of work, that conflict is what drives all of history. Everything else is just noise for the Marxist. So, from the class struggle perspective, we have a different set of actors. We have working class people who protest. In 1814, there was a group in Manchester, the bleeding heart of the Industrial Revolution, um, who set up what are called short time committees. Uh, people who were uh, allied with particular trade unions, particularly the Operative Fine Spinners Union, who brought law cases against factory owners who they believe exploited people. But that obviously did not solve the story. The big shift from the 10 hours a day to the eight hours a day happened in the 1880s as a result of this kind of working class political pressure as part of a pan-European pressure campaign where people, workers, marched in the streets protesting what they thought were unjust labor practices all around the industrialized world. In May Day 1890, there was a uh, European-wide protests uh, advocating for the eight-hour day. In Britain specifically, you saw this in pubs and in trade union halls where King Alfred the Great was held up as laying down the norms of the just moral economy. Eight hours sleep, eight hours work, eight hours play. And this was uh, hung up in banners and made into the names of pubs. And if you talk with trade union people today, they will still tell you that that is what they are looking for. Eight hours work, eight hours play, eight hours sleep. So from this perspective, 
from the perspective of the of the of the militant working class, what drives the political story, what drives that is the fear of revolution. What drives all of these incremental pieces of change is the real motor of history, the working classes. The real motor of history that the people who talk about politicians ignore are the people forming unions, breaking machines, striking, educating themselves, understanding the unjust economic system of which they are a part. So unfortunately, I've had to to set down my co-host for her nap. Uh, And so she's going to miss the third thing that I think really moves this story, which is the cultural aspect. Um... So what do we mean when we say that, that that something's caused by cultural factors? Sometimes it just means that people are a little wishy-washy about how they think about historical change. But I think that when we talk about culture, we're, we're really talking about changes often in particular cognitive categories. What we understand when we refer to particular kinds of, of, of things. So one way that we can view the cultural change of, of work time is in how people viewed children. Uh, we're going to talk about this quite a bit in a couple of weeks, well, a couple of days, because I'm recording these all in a rush. But one of the big changes is that the, the concept of what a child is um, altered quite drastically. Before the Industrial Revolution, really broadly, uh, what people thought about children was that children were born sinful. Um, They were born, at least in Christendom, understood to be marked by the original sin of Adam and Eve and in need of education, reform, redemption. Um, People mourned the loss of an infant, um, not just because it was sad that they were dead, but because they were unable to receive the sacrament and thus have their souls saved. Children needed to have their renate sinfulness restrained, and they restrained this through work and through punishment. Work and punishment and uh, 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 physical mortification, these were all redemptive. They taught good values. However, in the Industrial Revolution, for some reason, we see this idea of childhood change. Childhood stops being this kind of area in need of reform, and and it starts being marked out as a special time in life where people are especially innocent, where they have a kind of like special purity, and this innocence and purity are in need not of reform, but in need of protection. They should be away as far as possible from the polluting influences of the adult world. All of the adult world. Children shouldn't drink, they shouldn't fuck, and they shouldn't work. This change is in some way one of the reasons why uh, people... um, were advocating so much for reforms to particular kinds of factory practices that involved children. A child, if you think of them as a sinful little beast, it's great to send them to the factory because not only will they be able to restrain their inner beastliness, but they'll also be able to do something good for the world and make money for their family. However, if you see a child as an innocent little petal, 
than sending them off to the factory where they might take up smoking and drinking and, you know, might be stunted by, you know, working 80, 12, 14 hours a day. That is bad because it pollutes them. Where do they go? Where, where can you send kids to school? So that's that's the cultural side of the story. Um, the actors here are people like Rousseau, who who uh, uh, talked about new ideas of, of, of the relationship between the individual and, and society and what society does to discipline you to actually be a part of it. Uh, romantic poets of who, who use the ideas of Rousseau to write sentimental poetry about the plight of poor children. Um, you also might think of, of, of actors in this as being rituals themselves, domestic rituals that centered children as their main actors. Finally, we can think about this story economically. Um, we can think of the story of declining work time as the result of a bunch of people uh, making rational decisions based on particular costs and benefits in a changing environment. The story here is that it's simple economics that drove the original uh, increase in work time. The factories had what is called huge, quote, fixed capital. They start cost a ton to start up. Buying a factory is really expensive. Um, and that expense means that it makes economic sense to staff them and run them as much as possible. On the labor side, you need a group of people who are willing to do the work. Jan de Vries's uh, uh, really great Industrious Revolution talks about this. He talks about how households rationally made um, economic decisions to not spend time at home, but rather to spend time working so that they had money to buy consumer goods. And here, the change in work time might be a change in this kind of rational economic household preference. People started to prefer not uh, getting a bunch of money so that they could buy material things that they could then use at home, material things like tea and coffee, but rather they started to uh, uh, prefer a bunch of, of commodities that required a bunch of household labor to make. Family dinners, family vacations, uh, celebrations, a clean house, uh, playing with the kids on a Sunday. Um, and this changes... Uh, the 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 underlying economic calculus. You can also think of it as 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 uh, you know a, a shift in the geopolitical uh, 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 concentration of labor. Um, work time declined um, in Britain because it increased elsewhere. Factories were exported away from Britain, and so the people in Britain were able to live uh, working a lot less. Thank you very much for listening to this baby-filled episode of Making of Historian, and thank you to all the people who've helped me along the way. Thank you to Jonathan Lear uh, for making the, the theme song. Uh, thank you to Duncan Barton for making the image. Thank you to everybody who has uh, bothered me to make a new episode. Uh, it, this is on you. Uh, this is your fault that I am doing this. Um, thank you to Superfan and uh, 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 my rival, uh, John Handel, uh, for prodding me. Um, Thank you to all of the mothers-in-law who listen and uh, all of the people who've told your mothers-in-law 
to listen. Um, We will be back with an episode maybe tomorrow. Um, Keep on listening.